Warrior Woman, welcome back to the Warrior School podcast. This is episode 201. We're back. We're in our 20s, as my guest says today on the podcast. And I'm really excited. I'm excited for the 20s, for the 200s. Uh, I had a little rest. I had a few days off. And now we're back. And do I have a guest for you today? This woman is full of beans, literally. Uh, I have known her for well over a decade. We first met at CrossFit St. Kilda in Melbourne, Australia. We had the same coach uh, and her husband, Nick, was an osteopath at the time. And he treated me for many years while I was competing in Olympic weightlifting We've had many a dinner party, potluck, uh, many coffees together. And this conversation today was really 10 years in the making. Uh, My guest today is the one, the only, Alice Zaslavsky. I've got so much to say about this woman. Her energy and her empathy, her enthusiasm, and her strong obsession for vegetables is infectious. She combines this teacher's heart with this voracious appetite for food, for culture, and for food literacy. She is an award-winning author and food literacy advocate. Her vegetable Bible, and it is the size of a Bible, but way more colorful, in praise of veg, is an international sensation, winning awards and accolades around the globe. Uh, They call her a vigilante because she is obsessed with vegetables. And if you do not have in praise of veg, you got to get your hands on it. It is available in North America. She's also a broadcaster. Uh, She's the host of ABC Radio Melbourne Saturday Breakfast. She's a resident foodie on a news breakfast program in Australia. Uh, She has just played it up or given birth to... Uh, Her new hit, The Joy of Better Cooking, and this is available in Australia. It is coming. It's coming to the north. And this book is really about uh, giving you a sense of confidence and freedom in the kitchen. So no matter your age or your ability, uh, it's all around being better at cooking every time you step into the kitchen. Today, we talk about a lot of things, but I really wanted to get Alice onto the podcast to talk about how we nurture our children's relationship with food. And so that's the bulk of our conversation today. Uh, I do ask Alice at the start to share a little bit about her story She's got a very cool and interesting uh, background story. She grew up in Georgia. Uh, I also actually trained her mom, Freda, which is a really cool part of, you know, our story of knowing each other. Freda and I worked together for a while while I was coaching in Melbourne, and she is a badass just like Alice. Uh, And so we talk a little bit about Alice's relationship with food, her upbringing around food, and really where her interest uh, started when it comes to food, and especially our relationship to food. Uh, The bulk of her work uh, that she does, she does a lot, as you heard, but a lot of it is around food literacy and, you know, educating people and especially children on food. She does a lot of work with vegetables. And personally, she's been on a really cool journey over the last few years uh, since becoming a mum. And so I was really curious, you know, knowing Alice, knowing the work that she does, uh, all of the resources and tools and education 
that she has provided in the area of you know nurturing relationship with food and food education I was really curious to hear how she's been nurturing her daughter's relationship with food you know that's a really big fascination for me uh, growing up in a household that <laughs> uh, you know our relationship with food wasn't nurtured and so we talk a lot about that and there's this piece in the podcast which you know, might be a little controversial for for some of you listening, but it is so powerful. I want you to really listen to this conversation and really listen to what she calls the Zaslavsky method when it comes to uh, her nurturing her relationship, uh, her daughter's relationship with food. There's some really powerful uh, uh, words of wisdom and advice in there. I know I work with a lot of women who have really struggled with their relationship with food and uh, they are mums and they also struggle when it comes to nurturing their children's relationship with food. So Alice and I talk about how do we help uh, connect our kids more powerfully with food? How do we get kids interested in vegetables? You know, how do we navigate raising fussy eaters? What do we do? And then we talk, uh, we finish our conversation today talking about Alice's work, her books, and, you know, her upcoming uh, new baby that's being birthed into the world. This was such a joy to have this conversation. Uh, her, I, I'm obsessed with her. I love her. I just love her. I love her work. Uh, and I really hope, not I hope, I know I damn well know that you are going to love this conversation with my dear friend, Alice. It's like, it's a new day. It's a new day in the workroom. <laughs> okay, I think we're live. <laughs> it's the first time that I'm using this with a guest. Uh, I actually feel a little out of practice with a guest because I've just gone on a podcast sprint a solo podcast sprint for the last 16 days and I recorded 13 episodes so I could get to episode 200 to celebrate her fourth birthday <laughs> wow and is the 200th episode um the one with your partner because I just saw you post about that you know it's taken you a long time to get him on on the air no, he got um, episode 199. That's fine. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, I can't wait to know. Like if that's 199, what could 200 be? <laughs> well, 200 was celebrating that I got to 200. Right. Uh, and so it was a little bit of a celebration and after party. But, yeah, he got uh, episode 199, that spot. And, yes, four years, uh, 198 episodes and then there he was. <laughs> so Alice, you're 201. That's really exciting. I'm honoured. I'm honoured to be 201. New, it's a new era. It's, you're in your your 20s. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it does feel like that actually. And I've been wanting to get you on for a long time. We've known each other for a long time, I think, like well over a decade now. Yes, <laughs> in our 20s. <laughs> in our 20s and now we're in our 30s, yeah. Yeah, deep, deep in our 30s. <laughs> deep. Yes, deep into our 30s. Uh, I'm really excited and it's a pleasure to have you on. So thank you. I know there's a lot going on in your world. It's full and bright and busy and we're going to talk all about it today. Great. I can't wait. It's uh, This feels like uh, um, the conversation that we've been meaning to have for over a decade, but just recorded. <laughs> it does feel like that. It feels like a conversation that we would have at Monk, which uh, is... Well, used to be one of uh, our regularly visited cafes uh, in Melbourne. So it's still around. It's still somewhere that we go. It, it's changed ownership now, but it's still like if you're ever in Melbourne and you're looking for a really good chai, that's where I would go. Yes. 
good chai, good coffee. Uh, Alice has got her coffee. I've got a tea because I'm not going to allow myself coffee at 6, 12 p.m. <laughs> so <laughs> smart. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. We've got our hot drinks and let's have a conversation. And I, when I was thinking about our conversation today, I was like, oh, where do we start? And I do want to start with a bit of your backstory uh, and then we'll connect a bunch of dots and it will lead us to what you're doing today. But let's start off. It's been, has it been 11 years since you were on MasterChef? Almost 12. Can you believe it? So the end of 2011 is, I still remember, and this will this will really be a moment in time. So we, um, you know, you and I knew each other from our CrossFit gym. Like we were there almost every day. And I remember my um, New Year's resolution, Rose, who owned the gym at the time, went around with a video camera and was like, what's your New Year's resolution in 2012? I'd like audition for MasterChef. It was something that I was going to do just for fun uh, and then go back to teaching. And um, my resolution was that I was going to do double ups in 2012 like uh, not double ups I was going to do muscle ups <laughs> I was already on the double up train but yeah so I was going to do a muscle up that was my like aim for 2012 and then um the master chef process was quite different to what I expected and I am still yet to do a muscle up <laughs> maybe, maybe that'll be my resolution yeah. for 2024 <laughs> yeah maybe that will happen in your 30s maybe <laughs> Okay, so talk us through because a, a huge part of your work, you're like, you do a lot of things, which we'll get into, but a really big part of, I guess we could call it like your vision and your mission is this idea of teaching, like teaching about food. And a big part of what we're going to talk about today is teaching children about food. So you come from a teaching background. Uh, can you just tell us a little bit about yeah, what you did before MasterChef, talk us through that experience because that really launched you. Well, no, actually, let's go back e even further. Yes, this is where I want to start because I was just making my tea and I was thinking about your upbringing around food. And I've, I've never asked you this, like what was it like growing up um, and what was your relationship with food like or what was modeled to you growing up? Could we mm -hmm. start there? Sure, we could start there, but I don't know how long your podcast is, uh, your episode, you're aiming to make it. So, yeah, welcome to part one of the episode. <laughs> so um, my relationship with food over time has definitely um, evolved. And it's funny, like for a long time, I told the same story that a lot of people tell around, you know, growing up around your grandparents and that food was a really positive place and it was a really kind of um loving um cultural um love language of ours and it absolutely is you know I grew up in Georgia in the former Soviet Union at the crossroads of Europe and Asia and um you know having a Jewish sort of background as well so many reasons um were there for the first thing that anyone in my family to say to each other was have you eaten <laughs> so like and my grandfather was a really keen gardener and I remember sitting out in his garden while he sort of uh, tended and pruned his fruit trees and, and tended to his vegetable patch. And that was really um, such a beautiful place for me to grow up. And I think a lot of people perceive the Soviet Union as a place of rations and um, empty shelves. And certainly there were moments like that. But because Georgia was known as the fruit bowl of the Soviet Union, we had these beautiful fertile soils and we were self-sufficient. And so food, it never felt like we didn't have enough food or it never felt like we were kind of skimping. However, we were also there at a time of great civil unrest, you know, in 89, what you're seeing in Ukraine was attempted in Georgia. And um, that meant for, I was four years old, I didn't know how to process that information. And I didn't understand why there were men with guns in the streets and why I didn't feel safe. And it wasn't something that we spoke about in the house because, you know, I mean, like that notion of like honouring feelings and meeting, you know, like 
<laughs> naming things so that we can move through them. That was not part of the cultural or, you know, that was not a thing. So instead I was internalising this fear and there was no way for me to articulate it beyond knowing that when I went to kindergarten where the men were stood out the front of my kinder with guns, with semi-automatic rifles and smoked their cigarettes and we could see them through the windows, when lunch would come, um, I couldn't keep it down. So it was like this kind of schlepplap. So it was like a kind of a grisly, meaty risotto, I suppose. And every day I would try and eat it and every day I would regurgitate it. And then they would have to call my mum and she would come and get me and she would take me back to work and make me a risol sandwich on rye bread and eat and I would eat that. And she never shamed me. You know, she never said, you know, you have to eat that. Why is that, you know, you, you're bad, that's wrong. It was never that. It was just a really safe and comfortable place. And I reflect on it now and, and I realise that I was doing that in order for mum to come and save me, right, because I couldn't say out loud, I feel unsafe and I need somebody to take me out of this situation. But I think in not shaming me and in not making me feel like what I was doing was wrong, she actually saved my relationship with food. And if I think about a lot of the work that I do now, whether it is with kids or with adults in healing a lot of those kind of childhood traumas and wounds around food, that has to go back to that moment. And, you know, Amy, I didn't think about that in that way until the last few years. Like it's taken me a long time to make that connection between what was going on externally and what was happening internally. And, you know, that's kind of the journey of, of, of wisdom and age and kind of going back and thinking about that stuff and therapy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a whole concoction, a whole cocktail of things I think yeah. can help us, yeah, learn those um those really cool lessons there is you know often we can look back and connect the dots you know but we can't look forward and so when mm -hmm. you know we move through life there's like these little dots that pop up that you start to go ah oh, this is shaping like my story like that was yeah. a dot I never saw and now you know the the work that you do is very much around uh building relationship with food uh, because a lot of people's relationship with food is is not great <laughs> yeah yeah and I think um as you say like hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can post rationalize all we like but in the moment um you feel what what it is that you feel but also you can choose how much of your story that takes up and how much of your bandwidth that continues to to play into so I like to um believe in that notion that you know our greatest wounds are also our greatest kind of you know you sublimate them and you turn them into some a, a gift for for others I suppose so that's really uh, the fact that I've felt that means that when I speak about it with others and uh, all of my media work is about letting people feel included and helping everybody to feel like food can be a safe place for them yeah it's um and I'd I want to get into that but I'm really curious uh, you know, this, this realization and, and the, this work that you do around building a relationship with food and, uh, you know, helping adults and children do that didn't come until a little bit later. Where was your fascination? Where did it kind of begin when you, you know, moved to Australia, you started to, you know, grow up? you know, become a teenager, move into your early 20s. Can you just talk a little bit about that relationship with food and your interest there? I think what I realised when we did, so so we fled Georgia, you know, in 91, came to Australia with absolutely nothing, including not knowing English. And for me, what I realised is that if I, brought, if I brought like an extra snack for play lunch and shared it with someone, I could make friends in that way. And so it really was as simple as I, it was a transaction, right? So it's like, if I give you food, you will spend time with me. We can feel connected. And that definitely grew. And, and you were a part of that, you know, you know, in our, in our 20s, we were always kind of hosting dinner parties or bringing, um, bringer plates for barbecues and things. And um, I really kind of realized that food was a fascination for me because it's always there's always something new to learn and there's always something 
extra to to glean from it. Um, I think that one change, though, from when you knew me to now is that I'm much less, um, I think I was never that committed to paleo, let's face it, but I was interested. I was, like, interested in how we could find loopholes and how we could still make food delicious within these rules. But nowadays I'm much more um, intuitive in the way that we eat and in the way that I cook. And um, my one kind of guiding principle in the way that I cook now is that everything is veg forward. So like if I can load up our diet with vegetables, then nothing else really can shake the, the, the nutrient density of the food that we're eating and, and the, the nourishment that we feel and the zing factor of a veg forward diet. Yes. You know what, Alice, I love that. I love that learning with inside like constraints of a diet which so many Mm. people have experienced there was this curiosity around okay well how can we like make it exciting or make it fun but then realizing can you just talk a little bit about realizing that that like that kind of container or that way just didn't really suit you Oh, um, well, I think that at the time um, it was just the craze, right? That notion of clean eating in inverted commas and, um, and, and the idea of what it was that wasn't a part of your diet rather than what it was that was. Um, you know, I remember distinctly making a pizza which was like the paleo version of a, of a pizza, but it was just like a mince base and then more meat on top and cheese and the tomato kind of passata. But that made us feel like crap, you know, (laughs) like it didn't make us feel good. So I think what I learned from from that and through that is that um, you really can't let other people dictate what it is that you should be eating or like every person's diet is so individual and you need to understand it. So since then, you know, we've had our epigenetics um, mapped and, And I know now that actually I process food very differently to the way that my husband Nick does. So, you know, let alone how our four-year-old eats as well. So if we were to set ourselves within the bounds of diet culture or diets, it would be impossible for us to actually feel our best. We need to listen in rather than listening out, actually. Um, And beyond that sort of the mapping and the just the general curiosity and the biohacking, um, I work in food. So if I set limitations on what it is that I can taste or what it is that I can cook, then that's going to mean that I can't do my job. So actually, you know, the other thing that happened beyond MasterChef when I got out and sort of joined the food media ranks is that I had to say goodbye to any notion of, you know, sticking to any kind of rules. <laughs> there are no more rules. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like rules anyway. Rules. Who needs them? Rules. Yeah. I, I like just like my own rules, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think that there are just instinctive things that, that I do and I know. Um, like I've recently started working with um, Monica. Um, so Monica Aurora, who is a yogi and she's just, um, she's sort of pivoted to not just sort of uh, being a yoga practitioner but also a a traditional Chinese medicine doctor as well and um, Monica kind of just reminded me that hey starting your day with protein and this is like stuff that I definitely know deep down in my heart that I've just kind of ignored but if you just like boil an egg and start your day with protein instead of and and drink water before you drink your coffee in the morning then you're going to have a better time you know those are the kind of rules that I'm happy to understand and and play with but if somebody tells me not to eat something, that's kind of where I draw the line. That's my rule. Yeah, you can't yeah. tell me what to eat. <laughs> the body is the boss, you know. And if we yeah. if we listen, listen to it, listen to her, she will. So intelligent. Yeah, yeah, she knows what you need. Like especially, and actually, um, for anyone listening that's ever been pregnant, you know, you think about cravings. The body craves things because that's what you need for your you know child to grow it's it's really kind of it's actually that we're just more more attuned to a voice that's always there but probably just kind of we're blocking it out 
Um, but I remember really craving things like kimchi, which, you know, is fer fermented foods was a real craving of mine. And, you, you know, you think about that notion of ice cream and pickles. So that, that is because pickles or sour foods can really help to kind of um, mitigate the morning sickness. You know, from a chi perspective, it can bring yourself back into your body. Uh, so I'd start my day with kimchi and yogurt. I suppose. Um, but the ice cream is just a really quick energy intake. So instead of eating ice cream, you could think, okay, my body's craving more energy. So what else can I eat to kind of give it the extra energy that it needs? It's probably not sugary stuff. It's probably something that's a little bit more nutrient dense and lower in GI. <laughs> yeah. It, um, and doesn't your daughter, doesn't she love fermented food? Does she love oh, yeah. yeah. Hazel, so the nut is, is how we refer to her, but uh, ha she, her name's Hazel and she is nut by name, nut by nature. She eats exactly in the way that I knew she would. You know, my intention was to eat really widely during pregnancy and have a really positive mindset. Um, and she eats, she, people say, oh, she eats everything. She doesn't eat everything. She eats everything that's delicious. So, like, if she tastes something and she's like, oh, that's under season, she's either going to season it or she's not going to eat it because it doesn't taste good to her. So she's, I like to say she is fussy and I'm proud of it. You know, she's discerning AF. So, <laughs> so I think that um, she is the product of understanding that that process of, of pregnancy, that is first exposure. And one of the problems in sort of Western medicine and in the medicalization of pregnancy is that women get told what not to eat. Um, so it's about, it's a fear-based rule structure. So don't eat raw cheese, don't eat raw fish, don't eat, um, you know, um, all, all of these kind of limitations. And what that means is that every time that that woman encounters food during pregnancy or that person encounters food during pregnancy, they um, instantly their mindset or their psyche is a negative and fear-based one, right? So then when their baby is born, because everything that's happening during pregnancy is being absorbed and internalised, whether that's psychically or physically through what we ingest and what, we're, what we intend, why are there so many fussy kids now? There, there have always been fussy kids, but why, are there so, why is food fear such a, an epidemic part of that is because of all of the fears that are being put on pregnant people you know in in this kind of system so I'm not saying go out and eat every stinky blue cheese you've got to be logical you've got to listen to your body I know when I was pregnant I couldn't even stomach the smell of blue cheese and that was my body's way of saying don't eat blue cheese. <laughs> that Rockfort mold, not great for you. <laughs> However, you know, if you go to your fishmonger and you trust them and that fish smells good to you, eat that sashimi. Don't, don't cut yourself off. Um, I do draw the line at alcohol for me because I'm, I'm not a drinker, so I didn't need the alcohol. And I remember there was one um, sort of I was very early pregnancy and I was at a degustation kaiseki dinner it was like this delicious 11 course Japanese feast and it was all wine matched and I didn't drink a thing but I was also pretending that I wasn't pregnant because I didn't want to like worry the kitchen <laughs> so they kept bringing things out and the final kind of courses they brought out a plum wine which I do love umeshu low alcohol plum wine and I thought oh you know what I'm just gonna like taste it to the tip of my tongue and I took one tiny little sip and my tongue straight away blistered because it was like my body mm. saying no nah, not for you, lady. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's that <laughs> signs and symptoms. You know, that's what I often yes. tell the women that I work with. It's we got to come back and we got to connect to the body. And she, like, it will tell you, it will tell yeah. you through, and it might take some time, some patterns, you know, humans, sometimes we're, we're slow learners, you know, <laughs> yeah. from the mind, the mind takes a little while to catch up to the body, but the body is so totally. intelligent. Uh, yeah. And I'd love those examples that you just shared. Well, let's just, let's dive into this. I want to talk about fussy eaters. Uh, I remember talking to you, I think it was last year or the year before, and 
I saw this video of Hazel and it was her head and it was her at, and the, the, the camera was directed down onto her plate and she must have been oh, maybe, no, maybe she was only like two, two and a half uh, and she was cutting something with a fork and a knife. Anyway, we were having a conversation back and forth and then you're like, hey, go check out. You know, she has like this little account where you just film her straight down and it's in like um, in chronological order. So you've done it from, you know, when she's been quite young up until now. And I was, I remember sitting there that afternoon and I literally sat there, I think for like an hour, just scrolling back through all of the videos and just so fascinated by her, her skill level, her curiosity, the, you know, even through the video, you could just tell that there was like this relaxed calmness around food and the dinner table. And sometimes you'd hear yourself or Nick, but it would just, I was so fascinated. And then I just, I want to talk about that. Like, I really want to talk about, you were just talking about how you started it during pregnancy, but can you, if you don't mind, would you be open to sharing, uh, you know, how you've really nurtured Hazel's uh, relationship with food? And then maybe we could like extrapolate that out into the work that you do and how you do that through your media stuff and, and the books. And does that, does that feel cool to you? That feels cool to me. Yeah, why not? Why not? I feel like we're among friends. So, you know, it, if you're listening to this podcast, um, then you're probably on the same wavelength. So I'm happy to, you know, get a bit woo-woo and I'm happy to just go, you know, bear all, um, So, which I don't often do. Like I think um, I'm really kind of intentional with my media work where I don't necessarily um, give away, you know, like show the whole deck because the, like from a general populist kind of perspective, you know, I'm I'm on Australian breakfast television. I'm, you know, my media work is quite broad. I'm a broadcaster. So I just need to be kind of um, when I um, am writing or, or speaking, I'm kind of keeping it general because I don't want to freak anyone out or make them feel like they can't, um, they can't achieve it. I'm, I keep it more achievable. But like so, so... When you hear this, know that um, honestly, 80% of my energy as a parent goes into Hazel's relationship with food. And I know that that's not feasible for everybody, but that is the choice that I've made. And it's one that I'm really intentional about because I know what a difference it's going to make for her life. And it's kind of the first five years will make a huge difference to the rest of her life. So um when I talk about that intentionality and and that kind of focus, like I remember waking up in the middle of the night when I was pregnant and thinking, what if she doesn't like food? (laughs) That was like my biggest anxiety. Um, And it's a real, it's a real thing. You know, some, some kids are fussier in inverted commas or some kids, um, especially, you know, if they're neurodivergent, then you've got other kind of, um, you know, there's textural issues to be considering and, and, like we're very fortunate that our child um, has kind of, uh, thankfully this one is amenable to all of the things and I'm sure, you know, if we do have another, it'll be interesting to see if these empirical kind of studies that I've been applying to my spawn can be replicated because that's like the real kind of, that's the real sign that that something works, I suppose. But if you would like to follow the Zaslavsky method... <laughs> So number one, I've already mentioned it. So during pregnancy, I ate extremely widely, especially bitter vegetables. So like green leafies, heaps, bitter um, veg, you know, radishes and turnips and, you know, root vegetables, just pretty much as widely as possible. The rainbow, the rainbow, the rainbow every day. We would have like borscht, which is like a, a vegetable based on beetroot. If you think about beetroot, that's a real blood serving vegetables so that was something that was always in our fridge and that I knew that that was like at least eight to ten vegetables that I was eating a day on top of the other things that I was eating then when Hazel was born um, I made a real effort to breastfeed I know that not everybody can but you know it hurts like hell but like eventually it's easier so um, breastfeeding was a real focus like I remember one night early on um, you know uh, I was 
really I had an engorged boob like to the point where it was just like hot um, it wasn't mastitis but it was hot and I had to get the lactation consultant in in the evening and I just remember saying to Nick this is so hard <laughs> but she came over and she did like the UV machine um, and and thankfully it was like fine and um, I actually fed Hazel on demand for two and a half years and what that meant is that I knew that no matter what it is that she was ingesting beyond the milk, it was just for fun. And that's like the, the baby led weaning kind of principle. One of them is that food is fun until they're one. Um, because actually what they're more so doing when they're first starting to eat is they're just like touching food and squishing it and, and experiencing just actually being at the table. So uh, then when she was four months old she was really curious about what it was that we were doing around the table we actually would put her on the table on in her bouncer she was on the table and she'd watch us eat and she would kind of follow our mouths so she'd follow the the you know the fork into our mouths she'd go um um <laughs> so she was keen as a bean and I remember um we thought oh maybe we'll start her at four months and then I started reading um, the literature and the current research shows that actually four months is too soon six months is the recommended but we could give her for example a, a lamb cutlet bone that she could gnaw on so that she could use that like a little husk or a rusk so she could gnaw on it to like itch her little gummy teeth little gums but also have the grip strength so start building up what it means to hold something and put it to your mouth right um, and she never, um, we never had a dummy for her, but she would have this like lamb bone that she'd gnaw at the table. That was like, she was very happy to do that. Then um, when I was breastfeeding, I was really, again, people put rules on this, like babies don't like garlic, babies don't like chili. No, my friend, eat widely again, because that's their second exposure. So whatever it is that they ingest through the milk, the flavour of the milk changes from meal to meal and from the time of day. So, for example, like in the morning or in the evening, there's like more of the hormone or, or the, um, you know, the milk is designed to encourage them to sleep, which I think is just, again, Mother Nature is a beautiful, beautiful lady. You know, <laughs> she knows. She knows what she's doing. Um, and then so that was sort of till two and a half and on demand and including breast sleeping. So we, we co-slept from when Hazy was, uh, I want to say, quite young, you know, I think maybe six weeks potentially. Um, and that was just because it just was easier, but it became easier and easier because, you know, you don't, you don't even, I would get more sleep. People say, oh, you know, sleep train them and, and they'll sleep better. No, you're still kind of thinking about them when they're not in bed with you. So it just meant I could just sort of roll over and feed her and then get back to my sleep and sleep more. And I have to say too, that, you know, I started writing in Praise of Veg, which is my big book which is my sort of James Beard finalist book when Hazy was four months old. And I think that, you know, if, if you think about what my days were, it was literally being a, being a, a milk, you know, milk machine and a writing machine, <laughs> like creatively. Um, your boobs are everywhere and then your fingers are everywhere. Your fingers are out tapping and your boobs are just out for feeding. <laughs> exactly. And then when, um, so when she was six months old, that's when we started to introduce food into her diet and it was never, it would never cook her separate meals. It was always whatever we were eating, but it was really intentionally kind of curated so that the textures or the shapes were available to her. So um, for the first eight months, at least, she made a huge mess, uh, maybe not eight months, but I've blocked it out, but she would make a mess on the ground. But again, like we bought a mat but realised that the mat would just get messy and we'd have to wash that. So we, we had a, we, um, our Rhodesian Ridgeback, our dear late departed Rhodesian Ridgeback, Leo, he would just come and lick the floor. That was like the easiest thing for him to do. He loved it. He'd wait. Hazel would go, ah, and then he'd come and lick the floor. <laughs> it was the best. Um, and then so really as far as what I learned, you know, because actually I've been teaching within the sphere of food media and food literacy. I've been doing that for the last over a decade, but this was my first opportunity to put some of those learnings into practice. So when you say that you couldn't hear anything beyond the snuffling, that was one of the things that I knew from the research is that we 
talk too much to our kids about food when they're eating. We talk to them about how good it is for them and we tell them like, isn't that great? And we kind of actually interfere with their natural thought process while they're eating when what we really should be doing is just like hamming up how much we're enjoying it with our facial expressions and just eating with them at the table the same things that they're eating. Uh, when I say the same things, the only real change that I made to the way that I was cooking is that I under-seasoned and then I'd have salt flakes on the table and she would all and we would season the food to our liking um, because, you know, obviously like it's just what we found is we actually just needed less salt, you know. So um, that was the next however long. I'm going to write a book about this, Amy, eventually, and by then my thoughts will be much more distilled. But at the moment it's just a mishmash of, like, my real life. The dots aren't as clear as you say. So, like, feel free to jump in with questions whenever you like. But um, I think the biggest learning that I made as well beyond kind of being quiet and being present is that um, she didn't have to taste anything. Like, it was on her plate, but if she just picked it up and smushed it and threw it on the ground... That wasn't an indictment on my cooking and it wasn't that um, I wasn't nourishing my child. Actually, she was just being a little baby scientist and she was seeing what happens when she picks something up and drops it on the ground. Ah, gravity. We make assumptions and we apply our grown lens to a child's brain and we think, oh, they don't like it. Oh, my cooking is terrible. But actually all they're doing is they're seeing what happens when they pick something up and drop it on the ground. And if they let's say you pick it up and put it back, they go, oh, okay, that's cause and effect. So then they pick it up and they drop it on the ground and you pick it up again. Okay, so now, now it's a game. <laughs> you know? So like put yourself into a child's brain when you are um, going through that process of, of eating together and don't take it so personally if they don't eat the food. It's not the food. They might already have eaten enough. Um, a really great sort of lesson that I was taught as well from a, um, a pediatric dietitian is not to think about a child's nutrition in single meal bursts. Think about it across the week. So because that food is digesting slower and because they've got these tiny little tummies, because they've had a big breakfast, they don't need a big lunch. So just serve up serve it up and whatever they don't eat, you're welcome to refrigerate and serve up again for dinner um, and not say and because you didn't eat it for lunch you're going to have to eat it for dinner no it's just there it's just there as part of the meal the family meal and if they want it then they can have it and hazel still now you know we might sit down to dinner and she might have a few bites of dinner and then she might jump up and run around because she's got all this excess energy we're not going to say no you have to sit back down and finish your meal before you can leave she is a kid and she has got so much boundless energy that when she sees, like when she's done a little run around and she sees that we're still sitting at the table role modelling what it means to sit and eat dinner and enjoy ourselves, she'll feel FOMO, that fear of missing out, and she'll come back to the table, she'll sit back down and then she'll want to eat it. Or it might be that she um, just, she, she's not back down to earth yet. So then she might have her bath or shower for bed and then she'll go, oh, but I'm still hungry. Dinner's still there for her and she can eat it then. You know, I think we're a little bit more loosey-goosey with it. Um, there are a lot of rules, again, that people put on children learning to eat. Like, for example, whatever they don't eat within 20 minutes, that's it, they're done. That is bullshit <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, you know, because they are not running on 10-minute blocks. Like, don't pull the food away because they might not actually have eaten everything. What we might do is we might leave that lunch food on the table and she'll wander around, play, come back and take a bite, wander around, play, come back and take a bite. And by, by mid-afternoon, mid that plate's cleared, you know, and, it, and that's not the intention, but she actually was hungry. She just wasn't hungry in that very, min, you know, that very minute, that 20-minute block where she needed to eat. So it's just I think we overcomplicate things for ourselves and I think we're trying to make controversial but true um, we as a society have tried to make children convenient and work around us and work around that notion of um, you know being busy productive parents but unfortunately they don't play to those rules so we do need to kind of loosen off a little bit and um, compromise kind of go into maintenance mode within our workplace or whatever it is in order to 
put the time into the stuff that's actually going to matter in 10, 15, 20 years time. Like truly your work can wait. And I know that for myself. (laughs) Firstly, thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, It's it's a powerful story. I'm going to get angry emails, Amy. Yeah. Yeah, no, but okay. So this is like, and this is a bit of a controversial thought for me as well. Because, you know, I work with so many women, women that are mums, you know, women that are, they're tired, they're low on energy. And when we're low on energy, when we have an energy problem, we have a very low resilience and tolerance to stress. We have a very low bandwidth. And what's happening, unfortunately, and yes, we're all doing the best that we can. Like I, you know, I, I, I. I, you know, my parents did the best that they can, they could, even though I was raised in a household that fostered a very terrible relationship with food. You know, my sister even experienced an eating disorder out of that, that household. Mm. But what I'm seeing is that because the parents have an energy problem is that then as a consequence, the kids are getting a lot of that. Like they're, we're not fostering their relationship with food. One, because we don't have a great relationship with food, but two, we have an energy problem. So we have a patience problem and a time problem. And so when you led in with that story of your, one of your primary focuses, yes, it's the work that you do, but you went into this with, I want to foster the most powerful, healthy relationship I can with hazel and food and I think that that's what's missing and it's missing because we're living these big lives that are busy and we're stressed and we've got to you know pay for things and work and I, and I totally get that but, you know I work with mums I work with single mums I work with families that are really big but it's like this is really important because we're raising kids that have not very powerful relationships with food and it's 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 heartbreaking it, it's I think that the the thing to say too is that we're both very um understanding and clear on our on our sense of privilege you know um it is a privilege that I am able to afford to put so much time and energy into Hazel's well-being but I grew up in a household like when we came to Australia with absolutely nothing and both my parents had to work um, I was very much a latchkey kid and we definitely couldn't afford the luxuries but my mother on a Sunday would put the time into making borscht that same vegetable soup and that would be in the fridge you know, it, some of the veg might have been from the discount shelf where it was a bit bruised, but you just peel those off and it's fine. Um, and that would be in the fridge after school so that we knew that that was like our after school snack. And mum knew that we would get our veg in and that we were nourished, you know. So I think that the greatest lie that we've also been sold in this in these past generations is that convenience food is cheaper or that um, it's more convenient because actually it's entirely inconvenient in the fact that it doesn't nourish us in any way and it actually takes time away from us on the other end yeah I'd love to know Alice um you know through through your work and through even your experience going through this with Hazel you know if you if we have families and parents and they are they do work a lot and they like they are busy because they have to what are mm. some, you know, I know you did talk about some things that you did with Hazel, but how do you help parents like nurture their relationship with food and their children's in a way that meets them where they're at in their life with their resources? A very good question. And, you know, there's a really good reason why I do a lot of my work indirectly. Like I'm not a pediatric dietitian and I'm not a child psychologist and I don't work in that space, but I work with a lot of people who do. And so I've in I've absorbed um, some really fantastic learnings from them. Uh, the best piece of advice that I've been given around kind of the language that we use or the scripts that we use around the dinner table, which are very different to the ones that our parents would have used or our grandparents would have used with us, is from Flavia Fayette-Moore. She's the CEO of Nutrition Research Australia and she says, treat your children like dinner guests. So like they're at your dinner party. 
you wouldn't say to a dinner guest, oh, no, 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 you haven't finished your broccoli. You can't have dessert until that's finished, you know, so actually, right? And and because, and I know that that's like a simplification, but if you think about that in your head, if you've got that in your mind, that will actually change a lot of what you choose to say. Because chances are, if you've got adults coming around for dinner, you're not making comments on what it is that they are or aren't eating. You're having a general conversation and every now and then someone might intone and say, ooh, this is tasty or whatever, right? It's a much more kind of uh, indirect conversation around food. So what that means is that you stop saying, eat this because it's good for you. You have to clear your plate. Oh, um, you might think that that first one I should I should qualify as well why don't we say eat this because it's good for you because we don't say that about cake so if we have to gild the lily of why the kids should be eating this cauliflower then they're instantly going to be suspicious because kids have a really strong bullshit radar and they go okay number one why are they feeling like they need to justify why I should eat this? Number two, I don't give a shit that it's good for me because I'm only thinking in the present. Talking to a kid, and this is like from, you know, a five-year-old to a 15-year-old, talking to a 15-year-old about why they should eat their veggies is like talking to them about their superannuation. None of those things feel concrete enough for them to care about. So what you can do, and like this is all actually learnings from a series that I did for Australia's Radio National last year. It's called Tiny Tasters. It's all free. You can Google it around the world. Uh, it's like a little five, six-minute grabs of information for every age and stage and it's different a five-year-old's kind of levers and and buttons to press are different to a 15-year-old's but I will tell you that your kids no matter what age they are do not care that that food is good for them and if they parrot it back to you it's not because they care it's because they know that if they say that carrots are good for their eyes then you can just like move on with the conversation Like it didn't work for us. It didn't work for us. Why would it work for our kids? <laughs> I gotta keep trying though. I'm gonna keep trying. I'm gonna keep using or using the energy that I don't have to convince That's them. It. Yeah. What is the definition of madness, right? And like you just keep doing the same thing over and over again. And then so one of the things that we also do and inadvertently, like all of this stuff, and again, you you said it, Amy, our, we do the best job that we can. Our parents did the best job that we can, that, that they can, that they could, but we're much more informed now and there's so much research out now about the psychology around um kids and around language and around the intention that you put onto let's say the foods so for example um if you say to your child no 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 <laughs> you can't have dessert until you finish your broccoli what that's doing is it's vilifying the veg and it's putting dessert up on a pedestal because it's like saving the best till last so a lot of pediatric dietitians these days are recommending that dessert goes on the table at the same time as the savouries, right? And everything is neutral. The language is neutral. If a kid says, you know, I want, um, I want that candy, you don't say, oh, no, you can't have it because it's bad for you. Or you, The conversation doesn't go, oh, but Johnny has that. Yes, but Johnny shouldn't be having that. But it's sort of you've just got to be thinking about it in child psychology terms and recognising that they don't understand the nuance. They are very black and white thinkers. So if you say that cake is bad for you, then they're going to internalise that as I'm bad for wanting it. And it's a very natural instinct and, you know, for, for us to crave sugar, particularly if that sugar or that cake has cultural, emotional capital around it. When do we eat cake? at celebrations, at events. So Hazel knows even before she's ever had a birthday cake, she knows that birthdays mean cake. Does she want to eat it? Not necessarily, but she knows that birthdays mean cake. So how you work around like that and how you recognise that with eyes wide open is that you just think about what it is that you say about that cake when you serve it up. You serve it up in the same way that you serve up that broccoli and if the kid's enjoying it, you go, isn't it great? And you don't say, isn't this a special treat? It's your birthday today. That's why you're eating cake. 
cake is for birthdays. You know what I mean? Like it's just like take it away, strip it away. And I know, uh, you know, this year for, for Hazel's birthday, we served up cake. She took one bite and it was like, she didn't say, oh, this is too sweet, but she didn't need more than one bite because it wasn't something that we were depriving her of and it was too sweet for her because she doesn't actually have that much sugar, you know. <laughs> and I've got a theory. Um, so she goes to a kinder that's like very alternative. It's like a, a Steiner kinder. And every family has to bake the same cake for birthdays and bring it in. And it's like, it's got no egg, it's got no nuts, it's like an apple cake and it's got no, sh um, like not much sugar at all. And the cake is not that tasty, let's just say. Like it's a very bland, boring cake. And when we baked it, like we put cinnamon on top, we used less sugar, but we actually put some crusted, like um, crunchy sugar on top. So that was like, you could taste it through the, and then um, when we served it up, one of the boys, like, because you come in as parents and you eat it together, and one of the boys next to me said, I don't usually like cake, but this one's good. <laughs> so my theory is that they are, like, aversion therapy. They're, like, giving these kids this, like, okay cake so that they have no idea, like, what they're missing. And I guess the lesson there is that you can't put the genie back in the bottle and you as the parent can set the precedent for what is and isn't acceptable. So if you don't want your kid to eat chocolate or, and that's fine, like, you know, dark chocolate at times is great. Hazel thinks it's too bitter, so she doesn't love it. But we just don't have lollies in the house. Like they're just not there. And she doesn't see us eat them and then us tell her that she can't eat them. There's just none of that kind of dynamic or hypocrisy. We were recently overseas, we were in a shop and the lady behind the counter was a teacher on her school holidays and Hazy looked over at this like real shiny, glistening lollipop and said, what's that? And the, the lady said, it's decoration. <laughs> <laughs> because she's got a whole lifetime. Like she, it's about knowing that, they, they can have sugar, but you can curate when that sugar occurs and like just know that it does have an effect on your child and just know that they don't need it. Like they, it's like they, 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 can, they get plenty of it from fruit, you know. They don't have to, you don't have to treat them with, with lollies. Like, you know, it's just, I don't know, Amy, maybe if we talk in three years' time once she's been to plenty of birthday parties, it'll be a different thing. But I just know that at the moment when she goes to birthdays, the first thing she reaches for are the fruit skewers because that's what she values. So that's... That's, that's what you curated. <laughs> that's what you curated for her. But that's it. in, in a, a very nurturing way. And I yeah, think that and, that is... Yeah. And I should say as well, like my fingers right now smell like lemon sugar because just before I came on air with you, we're baking, Hazy's having a play date this afternoon and we're baking an apple cake. She's baking it with her dad. And it's not, it's not the apple cake from Kinder. It's like the apple cake recipe that I'm, hey, can you hear her? She's like, don't tell them, don't tell them. But like she's baking that cake. She's touching the sugar. She sees how much goes into it. There's never like a, look how much sugar is in this cake. But because it, she's made it, it's special and she will probably share it. She'll probably have less of it. And it's just a, a more kind of, you don't say this is a special thing, but she knows it's a special thing because she's been part of the process. Yeah. Uh, so I know that you're baking cakes and you've got play dates and you've mm. got, there's a lot going on in your world. Before we just talk about um, in praise of veg, the new baby mm. that you're birthed into the world, um, and a little <laughs> bit more about about your books. Uh, just resource wise for parents, you met, you mentioned the little series you did mm. last year. Did you say Tiny Tasters? Yes. Was it? Yeah, mm -hmm. yes. yeah. Mm -hmm. So they can access that, and I'll pop the link into the show notes. Is there anything else that you would recommend like resource wise for the, for parents to look uh, into? Yes. So um, there are some fantastic accounts on social media around um, particularly that kind of baby led weaning first foods stage. Um, Solid Starts is a really great account that I love. Um, I also really um, I'm watching a lot of stuff around the world, your kids' food explorers. I'm really loving her kids are now in their sort of, you know, nine, 10, 
12 year old and they're kind of exploring food at a different age, which I'm really enjoying as well. Uh, Phenomenom is another resource that, that we've created, which is a digital toolkit for parents and teachers. And it's like webisodes and podcasts and resources that are all curriculum aligned. And even though they're aligned to the Australian curriculum, I do think there's still merit in showing them to teachers around the world and saying, hey, why don't you slip food into your art lesson or into your English lesson or maths lesson? Because uh, the thing that we really learned before Hazel was born in creating this program is that um, the way to talk to kids about food is in a neutral way and in a way to cultivate their curiosity because there's actually so many stories around food that are much more interesting than the macro and micronutrients, yes. you know, like the like the, the multi-sensoriness of it, the colours, the stories behind how the vegetables change colour and all of those things. So that's what the phenomenon so it's like phenomenon, but with an M at the end, like nom, nom, nom. So you can check that out, just phenomenon.com.au. It's all yeah. free. Okay. Thanks, Alice. <laughs> You're uh, welcome. Okay. So in praise of veg, that's like your big, your big baby. Uh, can you just talk a little bit about how did that, how did that idea come into the, to the world? I know you said you wrote, you started writing it when Hazel was four months old, mm. uh, just tell everyone what it is. It's this colourful Bible of Alice that just like just bleeds and exudes and jumps out at you when you open yes. it up. Yeah, well, it's. Um, I think that it's funny, you know, talking about phenomenon. So we uh, launched that program in 2018 and the point of it was to make kids more curious about tasting vegetables. And the program was working. You know, the research that we were getting back was that kids were really open to trying new foods and especially tasting new vegetables. But it was the parents that were letting us down because you can lead a horse to water, but if the water doesn't taste good, then, you know, there goes all that work. So In Praise of Veg really came about because I was trying to create a resource for parents and for people to find new ways to think about veg, to cook veg and to sort of see that vegetables don't have to be thought of as healthy or good for you or boring, that they can be delicious and vibrant and full of life and make you zing. So it's coded by colour, like organised by colour, all the way from white vegetables through to greens. And um, what I didn't realise at the time beyond just like being really fun to flip through is that it's really easy to find recipes. So of an evening, I cook by veg. You know, I look in my crisper or I look in the pantry and whatever's left over, I'll be like, okay, well, I've got sweet potatoes. So I'll go to the orange part of Impreza Veg and there are the sweet potato recipes um, and it'll give me inspiration. And even if I don't cook one of the recipes, I'm already in the mindset of what else can I do with that vegetable? And that book has gone on to be translated into, I think, 11 different languages it's in you know 14 15 different countries it's in North America it was you know James Beard finalist in your neck of the woods it's actually a Canadian publisher that took it to North America Appetite um, Penguin Random who are based in Vancouver Uh, (laughs) so hopefully I'll come out and visit them and visit you next year when my next book um, which is out in Australia but will be out in February um, 2024 in the states and that's called and in Canada and that's called better cooking so that came about really because in praise of veg has been just like a global juggernaut there are like over a hundred thousand copies in print it's been it's won awards or been nominated in every one of those countries that it's in and all of those languages it's about to come out in North Korea in uh, I should say in Korea it's coming out in in France and you know in every kind of climate um, and it's been just beloved and I would love to see that as well for better cooking because one of the things that I found with In Praise of Edge is that people love it but some people don't necessarily cook from it because that notion of a positive relationship with food that extends beyond eating it also goes into cooking and I think a lot of people um, get uh, set limitations on themselves and they think that if they didn't grow up cooking or if they grew up in a household where their parents said oh, I'm not a good cook Um, that can really hold them back. So what I'm trying to encourage people to think is that you can step into the kitchen and every time that you do, you get better. So aim to be a better cook, not a good one, and you will really find your place 
in doing that. You'll get your flying hours up and, and you'll find that you actually are a better cook than you thought you were. Oh, Alice, that's beautiful. And I think that we could take that idea or intention in every area of our life. Like that's, yes. I say that a lot of the time when women want to start to train, you know, where we're just, we just want to get better. We just, we're not after like the perfect or the best or yeah. great. We're just like, it's all about being better. And I, I just love that. Thank you. And I think, as you say, yeah, every aspect of, of your life, but especially places which should be more about play, and that is training and cooking. And I mean, we should be playing a lot more. <laughs> Have fun. fun. It should be yeah. fun. Fun. Yeah. We've lost we've lost the fun in these two vital essential things. Like when it comes yeah. to moving the body and training, we've lost the playfulness, the fun, the love. Mm. You know, we've lost that. We just don't have that relationship with it. And it's the same with food. We, mm. We've lost the fun, the playfulness, the, the curiosity, the, the powerful relationship with it. So I just want to say just thank you. Thank you for the work that you do. It is it's so important <laughs> and it's so powerful. Oh, well, Amy, thank you for platforming the things uh, that I do and thank you for over a decade of friendship. Um, I love seeing what you get up to on the socials as well. I'm just so proud of you and look forward to continuing the conversation in the years to come. Maybe I'll be 301. <laughs> <laughs> well, hopefully we'll see each other before we get to our 40s. So okay? too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You're on. <laughs> yeah, make sure you, you have to come here to Vancouver when, when yeah. the book comes to, for sure. to North America. Yeah. Alice, <laughs> thank you so much for your time for your energy and I know that you have a little human in the kitchen that's cooking a cake that you probably <laughs> want to go and have a look at. Warrior Woman, thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you haven't, please give the podcast some love by subscribing now. And if you enjoyed this episode, please rate it and share it with another Warrior Woman. Also, if you want to go crazy, I'd love if you wrote a review for the Warrior School podcast. And also share and tag me with your biggest takeaways for the episode on the gram. Okay, Warrior Woman, have a great week in training. Bye for now.